0: New York State politics notoriously corrupted. Sampson is charged with embezzling mortgage money. Assemblyman Vito Lopez, he was censured for sexual harassment last week. Major corruption scandal involving New York's Governor Cuomo. Shirley Huntley admitted to setting up a sham
1: nonprofit. Skeletons seem to just keep on coming out of the woodwork in New York State these days.
2: Last year around this time, I was working in the country of Libya. I was working with its citizens on democracy assistance. I was helping their political parties and their candidates prepare for the Their first set of elections after they won independence in 2011 from Colonel Gaddafi. As an American fascinated with civics, it was an honor working with the founding fathers and mothers of Libya's democracy. We worked through the kinks of government, you know, the kind that come with this newly found freedom. Being present to the conversations Libyans were having over their constitution, civil rights, equality, and government structure was beyond anything you could ever read in history books. During one of our trainings with party leaders in a small Libyan beachside town called Sabratha, we had this impromptu session about the importance of free press in democracy. The heated discussions we had around the need for independent journalism was not very different from the same conversations that we have in our country 238 years after our founding. How does the press function around a democracy? I'm Nomi Konst, and this is The Accountability Podcast, the only show dedicated to specifically discussing the corruption plaguing New York. The public deserves a right to know what's happening, and we're here to present you with weekly reports. Today on The Accountability Podcast, we talk about the role of investigative political reporting. This week, we take a field trip, and we visit our guests on location. We're joined by Wayne Barrett, a veteran investigative political reporter in New York. He'll talk to us about how the field has changed over the years and the need to keep this form of journalism alive in the modern era. And then we're joined by Michael Oreskes, the Vice President and Senior Managing Editor of the Associated Press and the author of The Genius of America. He'll tell us about today's challenges in journalism and how they relate to a functional government. But first, we urge you to learn more about our work at The Accountability Project by following us on Twitter at account underscore project and on Facebook backslash The Accountability Project. The Accountability Project is a new journalistic organization that investigates political misconduct here in New York. We are a nonprofit, so we rely on supporters like you to help us spread our message. Michael Oreskes is the senior managing editor and vice president of the Associated Press. He spent 27 years in the New York Times working from Washington bureau chief all the way to deputy managing editor. He was later the executive editor of the International Herald Tribune. He got his start as a local reporter here at the New York Daily News. He's the co-author of The Genius of America, How the Constitution Saved Our Country, and Why It Can Again.
1: We've both been watching the political system and we've both been watching its deterioration. Things just don't work as well as they used to and I think most Americans know that. The system doesn't function. So we wanted to back up a second, and we wanted to say, well, what is, why aren't, why isn't the system working? And nobody's think,
3: talking about that in a political campaign, aren't they? Well, isn't
1: that interesting, and isn't that a shame? Uh, we, we think that if anything could happen to help the American political system, it would be to talk more about these issues. But I certainly don't believe we should get rid of our system of checks and balances. But what I do hope, anyone else who has any thought on this issue will write about it, will debate it, Because what we need in this country is a renewal of our sense of what it means to be a democracy. This is not a failure of any one player here. It's not the press, it's not the politicians, and it's not the public alone. It's all of us.
2: Thank you for joining us today. It's great
1: to be with you, and congratulations on the start of TAP.
2: Uh, Thank you. This episode is about really the significance of political investigative reporting in our democracy and how valuable it is and, and really where it began and how it evolved over the years into what it is today. You got your start as a political reporter.
1: In Albany, in fact.
2: (laughs) How have you seen reporting evolve over the years? Has it gotten better or worse?
1: Well, reporting goes through phases, the cycles, really. And it it goes back all the way to to the start of the country, really, to making democracy work. You couldn't be an effective citizen unless you knew something about what was going on. But in those years, newspapers... That gave you really one side of the story, and the papers that were for Hamilton attacked Jefferson, and the papers that supported Jefferson attacked Hamilton, and out of that maybe emerged some kind of coherent picture.
2: Was that just policy based, or did it go more into the politics?
1: Side? Oh, it was. It was highly political. It was very politically driven, and it would, these papers were all run by people who had picked sides politically, and but so it it affected both policy debates and highly personal attacks on many of the, um, of the political leaders. When you get to the 20th century, we got into a kind of new, uh, new kind of journalism where uh, the journalism really kind of stood apart, stood separate from the political institutions. And really, during the Roosevelt, the Teddy Roosevelt era, you saw a very, very high-powered kind of investigative journalism, uh, often described as muckraking, uh, and some very great names in journalism, you know, like Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell, uh, really became important figures in journalism by independently digging into both politics and policy, into the work of big corporations, and really changed the face of both the country and of journalism. And I think much for the better. And really established the idea that journalists could become independent judges and watchdogs of how the country was doing. Um, and that basically any topic was fair gra- game. So a lot of the great journalism of that era was actually not about politics directly, but was about corporations, about uh, antitrust, and so a very important era for American journalism, uh, as well as for American politics. And since then, there's been an ebb and a flow. Obviously, we all know about Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein, and for a while, the idea of muckraking political reporting was very in, and every young reporter wanted to be a political muckraker. And then, you know, in more recent years, I think a lot of the interest has turned to other kinds of reporting. But I see, I see a resurgence these days in people recognizing the importance of holding government to account. Mm-hmm. And that isn't only hardcore investigative reporting. That's also uh, record checks, freedom of information. Um, but we're really, I think, in an era where uh, both journalism and the public are realizing that without independent watchdogs, uh, government really doesn't function very well. And the decline of a lot of big American newspapers and, therefore, the the reduction in the number of journalists present has been of great concern in that. And you see a lot of good um, work being done to try to fill that gap with other uh, journalistic entities. Certainly, we at the Associated Press have made a huge effort to expand the amount of journalistic work we do. We're present in every statehouse in the country, uh, the only news organization that can say that. And we put a lot of time and effort into expanding our journalism, our investigative journalism, our freedom of information journalism. We spent a lot of time filing legal cases to open government up for various reasons. And it's all, I think, part of one big idea, which is that without the watchdogs, government really does go off on its own and doesn't serve the public interest.
2: Have you seen your reporters have they come back to you and said at the State House level, you know, it's a lonely place here. We're the only ones left. There's just too much work to be done. I you mean, know, these are the things that I'm hearing from political mm-hmm. reporters that they have they have to file five stories a day and they don't have time to dig the way that, you know, maybe when newsrooms were bigger they had more people to work on these stories.
1: We tell them to make priorities. It's okay to spend less time sitting in a hearing if it means you can spend more time really digging into something.
2: What does that mean? What does digging
1: mean? It could mean a lot of different things. It means going out and interviewing uh, whistleblowers. It means going over to the county commissioner's office and filing a Freedom of Information for all his email. Digging means good reporting. It can be done in a lot of different ways, and there's no one rule. It really depends on the kind of story you're trying to uncover. Sometimes it can be uh, getting together with other journalism organizations and fighting the fight. To open up some meeting or open up a a, a record. Um, You know, we've had a lot of fights uh, across the country with states that are trying to keep secret how they conduct their executions, which we think is a hotbed of of the kind of corruption where if you're contracting secretly to get the drugs that you're using to execute inmates, that seems like an obvious place for danger and corruption. We take these fights on in a a lot of ways. The thing I hear mostly from our journalists in, in state houses and in other government coverage, is actually something different. What I hear more than anything is how much harder it has become to get access to information, how much tighter the government tries to hold information, how much harder it is to get access to meetings and to public events. Um, we're fighting with everybody from the mayor of New York to the president of the United States about getting access to their, to their meetings, to their events, to uh, public events that they hold. And I think that's an area of real concern, that governments, have, politicians and governments have come to the idea that the information that they hold is their information, as opposed to the people's information, and that they have a duty uh, and a responsibility to make information available, not just to journalists, but we, as representatives of the public, we have a particular duty to try to get information. And I see people in all sorts of government positions clamping down and making it harder to get information.
2: Is that a result of this media, this, like, cable news 24-hour news cycle? I mean, that's what the president always retorts with. Well, you know, every time I do something, I'm up on Fox News being criticized, and mm-hmm. then I can't get anything done, and then mm-hmm. it becomes politicized. That's his retort. Mm-hmm. What you know, what do you think is, the cause?
1: The biggest cause is the fact that politicians can get away with it and that they have their own channels now to communicate mm-hmm. uh, to voters. Back when I started in journalism, they really needed me. They had a hard time reaching voters without me and the television stations and other journalistic outlets. Now they can go on their Facebook page and their Twitter feed and their YouTube channel and they can reach the voters with their own pre-processed press release message without us the journalists. And that's given them the courage to say, well I don't have to give anything to the journalists. So and they miss the distinction. politician, an elected official, you. Anybody has the absolute right to create their own channels to communicate with other people. That's frankly one of the things the Constitution promises you. You have a right. Channels
2: meaning any anything
1: you can create. You can fold your little note papers up into paper airplanes and fly <laughs> them to people if you like. I might violate some other. It's a laws. very expensive but,
2: meal as long as it's paid for by.
1: But it's it's not for us in journalism to tell you the politician how should you communicate with the other people. It is for us as journalists to say nothing you do through your own channels replaces your obligation to let us know about the work of government through public channels. Right. So the freedom of information law gives us a right to have access to government information. You have a duty to talk to the public, not just your own way, but but through through other trusted sources. And I think that politicians have... Have a lot more leverage than they used to have because they don't need us in the same way. But that doesn't mean they don't have a responsibility to make the information available.
2: Do you think this is affecting the quality of candidates? I was reading this article about Gary Hart that's in the New York Times right. Magazine this week. They were talking about how the quality of candidates has gone down. You have candidates who are not contributing to the policy conversation because they don't need to. And those who used to aren't getting covered. So you know, unless you're shiny new and can put on a suit and read the talking points and be trained by a campaign consultant, In other words, a tool for whoever it is that wants you in office. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that is happening more often?
1: It's certainly the conventional wisdom that we don't get the kinds of candidates we, we used to have and that we don't have the kind of politicians we used to have, political leaders that we used to have. There's always a certain tendency to look at the past and think it was better than today. It's certainly true that it's very difficult to be a government official these days. There's a lot of scrutiny. I think a lot of that scrutiny is actually a positive thing. There's an enormous pressure to raise money, which is the thing I most hear from politicians these days, that Uh their job is taking up raising money, that that's what they do, and they don't really have time to do much else. So that pressure is out there. Certainly, there are certain kinds of scrutiny that simply didn't exist before a certain era. I mean, that article in the Uh Times was basically making the case that the the Gary Hart affair was the Uh first time that political infidelity became fair game for political reporters. Um, that's not completely true. I mean Thomas Thomas Jefferson's affair with a slave was covered at the you know covered, it was covered the back at the time. Day. Yeah. So it's not totally true, but I think it is true that Personal lives are much more intruded upon today than they were back when Franklin Roosevelt was president. I think that is a change, and we can have a discussion about whether that's a change for the better or the worse. I think it's probably harder to be an elected official today than it was once upon a time.
2: You spent time in Albany. I did. Are you paying attention to what's happening in Albany right now?
1: I still follow it as as an alum.
2: As an alum of Albany, we were talking to Wayne Barrett today, Mm -hmm. and I asked him, is it worse or is it better? I asked this question of everybody, because everybody has own perspective on New York over the years. Do you think that the level of corruption is becoming more apparent through these types of of cases being brought up by Prie or or other U.S. attorneys like Giuliani or whoever else was in the past? Or is this something that, because of the transparency, because the laws have become more strict for politicians... It is harder for a politician to get away with the, what they used to get away with.
1: Mm-hmm. In um, Edmund Morris's wonderful first volume of his biography of Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. there's a scene at the DeWitt Clinton Hotel in Albany in which the representative of the New York Central Railroad shows up at the hotel with a suitcase and goes up to his room and invites members of the legislature to the room and opens the suitcase, and it's full of cash. So we would be naive to say there uh, wasn't lots of corruption for a long time in Albany. Corruption's not a new idea. And in many ways, some of the corruption today might actually be—if it's possible to say—corruption is smaller, but it gets surfaced much more right. quickly, um, and that's a good
2: thing. Some of it's campaign finance stuff. You know, no right. one's handing you a suitcase full of cash right. or a bag of cash, but they're sneaking in consulting fees and funny right. places and paying for your mailers and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Which is illegal and, and a way of trying to buy influence.
2: What do you think is going to happen?
1: I think there's a real, a real recommitment among you know among journalists to investigative reporting i see a lot of great work being done by both uh, traditional media and not new not for profit groups trying to join in this i think it's great i think there's a lot of it now i think there's plenty of room for more so i'm actually pretty encouraged about the journalism these days. I think there's a lot of good journalism being done and a lot of people want to do even more of it. And I'm very impressed by how many people there are coming forward to support it. Non-journalists who just feel that it's an important public service and are willing to put up money to support some of these not-for-profits. And I think a lot of more traditional media are realizing that fulfilling our role in holding government to account is both an important obligation and actually good for our businesses, that it's good to, to be doing this work because it pulls in people and, and holds audiences.
2: Is it really pulling
1: people into yeah, audiences? I think people care about this kind of thing. You have to do it in a way that people understand. You What's can't, that? Well, I just mean you have to write and broadcast in, in language that people get and you have to explain these things in ways. Some of this corruption is, as you said, a little hard to understand sometimes. I mean you know, some of these campaign finance problems are actually pretty uh, opaque, pretty hard to figure out. So, but that's our job as journalists. We're supposed to be the explainers. We're supposed to be the ones who can translate so you understand it. And, you know, we need to take that seriously.
2: How do you break through the Kim Kardashians and the Facebook, you know, viral videos? And this is the the story that everybody asks me starting the accountability project is why is this going to work now versus, you know, 10 years ago or even five years ago? And, And my response is, well, The algorithm is changing every year, so there's no way that you can use a business model from 10 years ago today.
1: You can't fight the human desire for the fluff. I mean, people want penguins, they want cats, they want Kim Kardashian, and and you're not really, it's wrong to think of this kind of journalism as competing with that. Agreed. It's really not, that's not really the challenge. The challenge is that there are a lot of people in this country who are actually very concerned They're very angry at their government. They're very worried that the government isn't doing what they need to be done. You have to find a way to reach people and make them feel that the journalism you're doing is part of the solution. And I don't mean that you're recommending solutions. That's not the point. You have to make people feel that this journalism is helping to hold the government to account because that's what people want. And there are people who will read that journalism. Are you ever going to get as many clicks for your work on political corruption as Kim Kardashian gets for her tweets and her She's pictures in a sex
2: video with a politician, I can bet you. Look we'll at well, more. Context. There you go.
1: It looks like you have a plan. Good luck with that. <laughs> it's been great talking to you today.
2: All right. Good night. Thank you for for joining us today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Wayne Barrett was an investigative political reporter at The Village Voice for 38 years. He was known for his political takedowns and his intricate knowledge of New York politics. He was an adjunct professor at the Columbia Journalism School and he's a fellow at the Nation Institute. He's also the author of four books, two on Rudy Giuliani and one on Ed Koch, as well as one on Donald Trump, The Big Apple, City for Sale, Trump, The Deals and the Downfall, Rudy, An Investigative Biography, and The Grand Illusion, The Untold Story of Rudy Giuliani and 9-11.
0: Joe Savino, who's named in the indictment, or name, who was arrested yesterday and he is the leader of the Bronx Party. If you look at the bottom of the indictment, you'll see he actually lives in Rockland County. He's actually a town attorney in a Rockland County town, Clarkstown. And here he is, the leader of this Shell Party in the Bronx. His father was a member of the city council, was convicted of tax evasion, of possession of a machine gun, possession of gun silencers. He was convicted eons ago, so the son is now the county leader in the Bronx of this shell organization, Josephino, and he's one of the people he took. He and the leader of the Queen's Party, who happens to be the vice chairman, a guy named Vincent Taboni, but he really runs the Queen's Party. The two of them took $40,000 in bribes, according to this indictment, and were promised and agreed to accept another 40000 to deliver this Wilson Pakula to
3: Malcolm Smith.
2: Wayne, you worked at the Village Voice for 38 years? Yes. How did you become an investigative reporter?
3: I I went to Columbia Journalism and uh, graduated from there in 68. To avoid service in Vietnam, I became a New York City public school teacher where you could get a a draft deferment. And so I taught in the schools in Brownsville and created... An investigative newspaper helped create an investigative newspaper called the People's Voice, which at one point in time New York Magazine said was the best muckraking newspaper in New York. And it was an anonymous newspaper; none of the stories were signed. Really? Yeah, twenty thousand copies an issue, and uh, just handed out door to door in in Brownsville, which was then the poorest neighborhood in the city of New York. We did things like identify every major drug dealer in in wow. Brownsville and where they sold their wares and but we also exposed what we called the poverty pimps you know people got shot writing for this paper but Whoa. it was really it was really a um, an underground investigative paper where we exposed everybody
2: It's one thing to have an idea and know these things it's another thing to have the courage Well you know
3: we were all activists at the time and we were we were very young. I mean, everybody who was involved in the paper was in their 20s. So I was the one who came there with some journalism skills, having worked at papers in Virginia. I had some reporting writing experience, but not really as an investigative reporter. You know, everybody else involved in the paper was black, uh, maybe a couple of Latinos. It's very small, and a very small percentage of the population of Brownsville was Latino. I was the one who brought those skills to it, but everybody involved was driven by, to expose the bad guys in the neighborhood, Hmm. whether they were in poverty programs, whether they were on the school board, any institution in the local community.
2: Did that have an impact? It had
3: an enormous impact. The people loved the paper. So I had a very tangible experience where you could actually watch in a community 20,000 copies of paper literally eaten up by people that lots of other folks thought couldn't even read. You know, but the, the people love the paper. The response that we got to the paper was just extraordinary, really extraordinary, because it was the only thing that really spoke to them as truth-tellers. And we were, you know, I think that's the central mission of investigative reporting, is to be truth-tellers and not to be balancing things out. So much of journalism today is on a much broader scale, particularly a national scale, of you got to give this paragraph to this side of an issue and the next paragraph to the other side of an issue. And it's it's an artifice, you know, so that we even do it with climate change when 99% Mm -hmm. of the unsubsidized scientists in the world, you know, say it's happening. We still have to give as much space to the handful who say it isn't, uh, you know. And so we have this kind of completely tortured form of objectivity which is really not objectivity at all, because the point of objectivity and the point of investigative reporting is to give people the truth. I mean, I certainly don't think it should be laden with bias, but it's not bias to make a factual judgment.
2: We did a, a podcast a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the Moreland Commission, and we had a reporter uh, from the New York Observer, Ross Barkin.
3: Yes, I listened to that, yeah.
2: And we t- there was a moment in the podcast where we talked about why is it that certain regions are covered and others aren't? And, you know, and I asked him, I said, is is this an editorial decision? Do the editors sit there and say, well, we're not going to cover the races out in Brownsville or East New York or parts of of the Bronx because we're not selling papers there? What's what's the reasoning behind that? And he, he didn't really have an answer. But, you know, when you look at it, these are the areas where it is lower voter turnout. And, uh, they're poorer districts, and they're also the areas where corruption is, is flourishing still. It's still. There's still a machine that operates in these districts. Mm-hmm. You know, I see a need for these community papers. I see a need for investigative reporting, and I think the excuse that I hear a lot internally from, from reporters is they're not reading the papers there. And the people on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side and West Village are all reading the news, and they're politically engaged.
3: Yeah, I think this is compounded in the days of cliques. Mm -hmm. You know, where every story, you can measure the size of the audience story by story. And, you know, there's an adage that a New York Times editor speaking to a class at Columbia Journalism, you know, said to the full class at one point, when I asked him, well, why do you never cover the Bronx? You know, he said something like, we got more readers in Cleveland than we Ah. have in the Bronx. Wow. And, um, you know, so look, any, this is a business right? And I don't think this is something, I mean, the New York Times is the greatest paper of our lifetime, okay? It does an enormously good job to this day. But, you know, it is a business and it does have to respond to advertisers. Advertisers want to reach certain kinds of readers. And writing for the people who actually buy the paper is a fundamental business concept. And so if nobody buys the paper in the Bronx... Then they're not going to cover the Bronx as well. That's just being realistic.
2: But that hurts democracy. And it
3: it does have negative effect on democracy. I don't. It still is an understandable business instinct. The much more formidable problem is that we now have you know Lindsay Lohan stories compared to stories out of Albany. Reporters are even being paid partially on the basis of how many clicks mm-hmm. they can attract. That's a way of absolutely reducing journalism to the most common, uh, least substantive stories, because the least substantive stories, if they're about a glamorous figure, are gonna attract more readers than something extremely important that has a certain inherent density to it. An investigative piece has a certain inherent density to it. And the, the thing that's terribly troubling about editors today is editors, up until 10 years ago, always understood that an investigative story has fewer readers Mm
1: -hmm. than your
3: average news story in a newspaper. They're they're dense, they're long, it takes a lot of words to make a case. In a white collar ethical story, it takes words. It's a word count thing. And so editors always understood that they wrote these stories and they published these stories and they played them on their front pages even though they were not accessible to many, many readers because they were terribly important. So the importance of news mattered so much more then than it does even 10 years later. We now have this infinite internet, and yet there's this fixation, a much greater fixation as an investigative reporter. I find this astonishing, really, is there's much greater fixation in the days of internet reporting on word count. And i right. keeping them under 2,000 words than there ever was when they had a print paper. Right.
2: I was thinking about that yeah. the other day. I was like, "Why? why does this even matter? I'm sitting there yeah. counting my words to put into an article and saying, you know, we have unlimited space.
3: <laughs> you know, after I left The Voice, I was brought by Tina Brown personally. She called me the day it appeared in The Times that I was leaving said come in and see me and she offered me a job and I went to work there and she said I want you to write 3,500 word investigative pieces that's what I want you to do for Newsweek and the Daily Beast and this was Tina's concept of what she wanted me to do now I'd written a few stories for her she bought the rights to my book at one one of my books at one point she actually paid me more for the rights to the book <laughs> to publish an article from uh, an excerpt from the book than the publisher paid me to write it right so I, you know I, I thought this would be terrific but then by the the time i left there they wanted a piece that had to be less than 2000 words um, clicks you were now comparing the clicks on an investigative piece with the clicks on a breaking news story that was half the size
2: well that's just apples and oranges exactly. it's just
3: It just doesn't work at all.
2: I think it's interesting you bring up two different points that, you know, as we build the Accountability Project, you know, we're coming out uh, with our stories. And one of the things that's really picked up over the past two years is how the younger demographic, millennials, are actually reading news in different platforms. So some people want to read long-form journalism, and there's a long-form trend right now where people want to read these long pieces. And then, like you said, there are the smaller forms. There are apples and oranges. And they see that the same readers are reading both, but they're reading them at different times on different devices, and they're different types of stories. So uh, a long profile on uh, the governor still has just as much impact as you know maybe some silly story about Kim Kardashian and like and Kanye West on the cover of Vogue you know these stories are still being read but it's not so much about the clicks it's about as it is the impact so back when you would write for for the village boys and you'd break a story maybe not everybody was reading the village boys but the people that were reading it were influencers and it had more of a buzz than these quick little hits so you know the way that we're building this organization is we're trying to present investigative reporting in many different mediums so it could be you know a satire piece a podcast Uh, a long-form piece, a daily column, whatever it is, you know, data. We're trying to tell the story so that it has the most impact. But when you were reporting, how did you see stories evolve?
3: If If you wrote a story that hit a nerve... The way to figure that out was other news organizations picked it up. You could never really tell when they would and when they weren't. I wrote one story which Chuck Schumer, in his own book, his own memoirs, credited his election to the Senate to, to a story I did on D'Amato that was one of the briefest stories. I did it, I had to turn it around very quickly, but it was in the middle of a campaign. It was right at the actually right at the very end of the campaign it had a tremendous impact on the campaign so much so that Chuck who attributed his victory to it and it was maybe 900 words long I was one of the brief I just had to churn it out real quickly because it was something we found out on deadline literally it was the reason for my greatest journalism award which was that Al D'Amato called me a viper in his <laughs> memoir and it was the greatest tribute ever paid to me so sometimes you hit you a, i certainly hit a home run with that story a lot of times i made an out with much better stories you know because nobody paid any attention to them and you know sometimes those stories were great stories that were dead letters so whether or not a story had impact was whether or not you could get it off of our pages into somebody else's pages or onto a television station with a broader impact otherwise it was just liberal democrats talking to liberal democrats and in a general election that had no real impact if it wasn't in a in a, a primary we could have a direct impact ourselves because in certain neighborhoods of the city we had a tremendous readership i did the first story ever done on aids and intravenous drug users wow. the first one in the maybe in the country certainly in new york and um it was a cover story and believe it or not it was a dead letter Nobody followed it. Nobody did anything with it. But it was a pioneering piece of work, one of the things I'm most proud of. So you could write a story like that and nobody followed it. I would say to people, because I often had people on the left say to me, Wayne, it must get frustrating to write these great stories and to see them just kind of die on the vine out there. And my answer was always, the struggle is its own reward.
2: We're here with Wayne Barrett, who's a seasoned investigative reporter. Wayne, you know this industry so well. You taught classes on it. When did investigative reporting start, and when did it start having an impact on the political world?
3: Well, you know, the muckrakers go back to Teddy Roosevelt's Mm -hmm. time, and a lot of that was done in New York. The great thing about spending so much of my career at the Village Voice is that it was a great repository of investigative reporting. Before I got there, I'd like to think while I was there, So it was a a kind of natural match of of me and, you know, they called it The Voice because it was a writer's newspaper. No editor ever told me what to write. Interesting. And uh, we decided, the journalists themselves, what we were going to write about. No one ever tried to shape the copy. In any way, I mean, really, I got some fine editing, but it was never political. It was never, you know, even questioning my judgment on something. We were supposed to express our voice. That's why it was called the, the voice. So that on some issues, I'm not a classic liberal at all. I'm not a classic liberal on public employee unions, particularly teacher unions. I write things that I think are correct, but a lot of liberals don't. There was never a time when the voice tried to restrain me in any way on that. It's a great tradition in New York politics, which I think the pages of the Village Voice were a very proud part of. And uh, the, the thing about a good investigative story is that it can lead to a multimedia response where, you know, television people are talking about it, they're reducing it maybe to just a couple of sentences, a quick thought, it it can stir up a whole media pot. Do
2: you think that corruption has gone up since investigative journalism has been on its decline over the past decade?
3: We certainly see more cases being brought, but that may simply be because we've got one aggressive prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and we had some, you know, we went through some periods of time when we did not have aggressive federal or state prosecutors. So we are seeing more come out of Preet Bahara's office than we have in the past, but I don't know if that means there's more of it going on. Uh, we're blessed with a very aggressive federal prosecutor who goes after and considers it to be a primary function of his office to go after corruption in Albany, corruption at the state or city level. That's much more a function of the individual prosecutor. Obviously, I've written two books about Rudy Giuliani, and I'm a sharp critic of his, but I still think he was an outstanding United States attorney who who, um, made many cases, mob, public corruption, Wall Street, Milken, made many cases that uh, make him one of the fine prosecutors in the history of the town. And you look at Tom Puccio, who recently died and was the federal prosecutor who ran the organized crime strike force in Brooklyn for the feds and who made the abscam cases, convicted 11 congressmen in the United States senator. So we've had periods of time where we had very special people who were deeply motivated to go after public corruption cases. And then we've had many long stretches of time when we had federal prosecutors who made virtually no public corruption cases, different guys in different errors. I don't think that meant we had a cleaner Albany when John Martin was U.S. attorney. We just had a less aggressive United States attorney or somebody who had a different set of priorities. So Bahara has given us the impression that things are much worse in Albany uh, simply because he's being so aggressive. But I think probably the standard of conduct in Albany and the culture of Albany, has been much the same throughout the years that I've been going there, which goes all the way back to the 70s and know anything about it. I think the culture is a a culture that's chilling.
2: What were the biggest stories that you ever published?
3: I don't think I can rank them. I think, you know... I'm a Brooklyn boy, so I, I think this, some of the things that were closest to my heart, you know, were the Brooklyn politicians that, you know, meet Esposito is a legendary figure, but probably few of your listeners will even know who he was, but he was the most powerful Democratic boss in the state of New York going back to Rockefeller's days, was very close to Rockefeller, and cigar chomping, though he didn't really smoke them. He always had a cigar in his mouth. But, I mean, he fit the actual physical description of a boss in such a degree that at one point I was going by his office to get papers from Meade and I wrote so many stories about Meade that literally I I drove him from office and it was a one-man crusade (laughs) and uh, he had to resign and and it was attributable to stories that I wrote he wound up convicted in two separate cases you know it certainly came out that on, on federal wiretaps that he was completely wired into every one of the five crime families but esposito would you know saw me in his outer office one day he would never return a phone call of mine but when he saw me he couldn't stop talking to me so so i go back to his office There, i don't understand every other reporter in this town loves me which was true i mean you know he was such a charming rogue That you know that half the guys in town were, you know, impressed with the the smell of him. He just he just personified everything that was wrong with politics in this kind of charming, engaging way. Everybody loves me, but you in that field, my friend. And he'd say, he says, I want you to sit down here and tell me why you hate me.
2: Just like a politician, yes. wanting everyone to love them. Yes. I said, read the
3: clips. He says, I read them. But he, he had to believe that there was some ulterior personal motive uh-huh. for this. He says, he forced me. Finally, I say, okay, I mean, first, you corrupted an entire judiciary. And he looks at me and he says, what else? <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly explain it. What's that got to do with you, Wayne? <laughs> you know? Wow. So, you know, which, you know, in those days, and to a degree to even today, the county organization selects all the Supreme Court judges in each county, which is just a calamity that we have that system. The federal courts have found it to be a calamity. Nothing will get Albany to change it. It's it's a bipartisan agreement to be corrupt statewide, you know, where you let party bosses pick the Supreme Court judges in every county. It's just, it's just a cesspool it's a cesspool. So uh, the stories that I think mattered to me in a way that will stick with me for the rest of my dwindling days are those Brooklyn stories and Clarence Norman, you know, finally we had a black county leader who was as corrupt as Meade was, you know, he wound up convicted three times, you know, so Meade was only convicted twice. That's the record. <laughs> yes. So you know, and then we have Vito Lopez succeeds Clarence, you know, so Uh, these guys, I wrote endlessly about Clarence. I wrote endlessly about Vito, Howie Golden, the only one in my lifetime who was county leader who never went to jail. He was not a saint. I'll tell you that. You know, so I think the Brooklyn stories, you know, they've played a special role in my life as a journalist. You know, certainly I'm known best for the work I did on Rudy.
2: Preventing him from running for president.
3: Well, he did run for president. Well, I I don't know if I did that, but I I certainly had some impact on Rudy and uh, tried to separate myth from reality about just how prepared and heroic he was. Uh, You know, that book, I think, did have an impact on his run for the presidency, The Firefighters Down in Florida. New York firefighters weren't down to Florida and were hounding him everywhere, and they were hounding him with stuff that came from the book that Danny Collins and I did about Rudy. And, uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes these things do have an impact. I was called by when Rudy was, you know, Rudy was at the top of the polls for most of a year. So while he was that much of a giant figure nationally, I was constantly called by the National Press Corps. And so the books, you know, were what led to those calls. And I think the books did have some impact on Rudy as a presidential candidate. You know, fundamentally, I don't think they will ever nominate a pro-choice candidate for president. So he had a, a fundamental weakness.
2: Where do you see New York politics in the Internet age with type of reporting that's going out there? Where do you see it going in the next five years, ten years?
3: I think it's going to get better. I think we've had a little bit of a downturn. It's never gone away. There's some very high-quality work that's been done. The Times did very effective stories about the Committee to save New York, which didn't do any- you know reporting of the contributions. I would say to you that I have never seen less reporting in an election cycle about where his actual campaign committee has raised money and how that dovetails with governmental decisions that he's made it, you know the the focus but times placed put that story on the front page about the committee to save New York and it, of course, there was no disclosure, so they were able to piece together where some of the money came from, from of genting and rules. so forth. Yeah, but but they weren't able to. No, they, the campaign finance rules did not require they, right. this. Was the not a pack. Disclosure. It didn't have to file. So the fixation became with that, and I don't think I don't think I've ever seen an incumbent governor run who's raised anything remotely resembling what Andrew has raised and seen less investigative reporting about whether or not any of those contributions are connected to significant business Mm -hmm. that the donor did with Andrew's administration. There have been a story here or there, never the kind of systematic analysis that used to occur all the time. We did it at The Voice constantly. With any major incumbent running, instead, the great story of this cycle is the Moreland Commission story, which is a legitimate story. I don't question that at all. The whole gist of the Moreland story is did he interfere with investigations that the commission might be conducting into his own campaign finances, and who were in his, his big donors? Well, reporters could do that themselves, themselves exactly, right.
2: Have to start and to so here to yes, do their
3: job yes, and we now have the big complaint is that he may have interfered to protect his own donors, but who's protecting them from a good reporter right. and 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 so the big complaint is some about something that reporters should be doing themselves, and editors should be seeing to it that reporters are doing it themselves, and there should be really comprehensive pieces rather than very rare and and kind of very subdued pieces about donors to Andrew. There should be a real serious examination of where he's raising his money, how much of it comes from Alphonse D'Amato, that kind of question. You know, I think that's an example of the dearth of investigative reporting that exists right now. But I expect it to get better. Now Why do I expect it to get better? Because there's a market for it. And you're coming into existence because you believe there's a market for real information. Instead, of all we got was sloganeering from Teach Out, whose campaign I did not respect. They had a hundred very intelligent people around them. They never did a serious analysis of Andrew's money. You know, you don't have to hire op-ed researchers. You don't have to say, oh, well, we didn't have enough money to buy op-ed research. If you're a law professor and you've got all these great young people with endless energy and time to do the digging themselves. So I, I don't think that this paralysis, its that's really an overstatement. I don't mean to suggest that nothing is going on, but that this, uh, this shortage, uh, really deep investigative reporting about things like Andrew's money or Eric Schneiderman's money. All right. The man is an incumbent attorney general running for re-election. I, I think Andrew was examined compared to how unexamined Eric Schneiderman is. I mean, at care. least, yeah.
2: yeah. I and mean, editors are probably sitting there saying nobody cares until he runs for something bigger.
3: Oh, but attorney general, the state of I New York is a very important position.
0: Clearly.
2: Yes,
3: yes. And it was certainly throughout most of my career If you could get a good story on the sitting attorney general and where he was raising money and if people had cases in his office and their lawyers were donating or they were donating or something like that, I don't think anybody's even looked at that. Now, we've had the biggest pension fraud prosecution in the history of the state. Well, Tom DiNapoli's running it now. Do we have the slightest idea what's going on in Tom DiNapoli's office and whether or not Has anybody looked at his contributions and tried to figure out whether or not there's some state business involved in some of that? These are reasonable hypotheses. I don't throw them out as conclusions. I happen to think Tom Dillapoli is one of the nicest people I ever met in politics. I'm just saying it's our job to check out how honest his operations are, especially since his predecessor went to jail and he's running the same pension funds and he comes from the same assembly. You know, it's our job to figure out, well, okay, what's going on in that office?
2: The response I get from reporters when I have these conversations is, you know, they're trying to report. They're too busy writing five stories a day yes. on the beat, and they don't have the resources to do this digging, which is why we exist, which is why you exist, which is why you're helping us, because there's just no capacity. And we can't wait until you have a U.S. attorney who's who has subpoena power or until there's some politically opportunistic time for an opponent to release opposition research. It really is the job of the reporting community.
3: Yeah, well I think, you know, this is something that as news desks shrink as the need for more copy. I mean, we've had the simultaneous thing of fewer and fewer reporters and yet the demand for more and more copy from them because you got to put it up all day now. Right. You don't just put it up in the paper in the morning. You gotta put it up all day. So the combination has been to do exactly what you say, to say, well, I don't have time to go out and do an in-depth piece and piece all these things together. That's not the fault of the reporter. I'm not even sure it's the fault of the editor who has to deal, we just saw in this morning's paper, with a 100 layoffs, Mm -hmm. editorial and otherwise, that the New York Times contemplated. So the editors are dealing with shrinking staffs and greater demands and so forth, so these are very difficult times. Why would I be optimistic? Because I think there's a great need for it and implicitly a market for it. And I think that generally what happens in American culture in and Amer- in the American economy is where there's a great need and desire for something, eventually that product is provided. Now, maybe it's gonna be provided through nonprofits like your own. Maybe it's gonna be just Editors who decide and publishers who decide we've got to spend money on longer form investigative pieces because the marketplace requires us to. The marketplace of ideas, the place in which we're trying to sell our newspaper or news organization requires it. You know, I do think I have enough confidence in this country to think that where there is such a growing and deep need, something will rise up to fill it.
2: Great way <laughs> to end this conversation, and and you know gives us a lot of inspiration because as we look at the business model of journalism right now, we're trying to adapt our nonprofit structure so that we can continue to fill this need and release stories in ways unique and creative ways that people can digest them and hopefully getting that these stories out there so that they have an impact like you have <laughs> over the past four years. Thank you very much well, to Wayne you. Parrott. Thank you. Mil- Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Accountability Podcast. Special thanks to our guests, Wayne Barrett and Michael Oreskes, as well as our executive producer, Andrew Tint, and our managing director, Dina Ragab, as well as the entire Accountability Project team. While it's not always campaign season, it is always corruption season in New York. I'm Namiki Konst, and I'll see you next week.